You got it, man. Uh, let's uh, turn, stay in First Samuel. Let's just turn to chapter, I don't know what, just turn to chapter 1 right now. I don't know where I'm starting. But if you have that sheet, um, we're moving right along here. It feels like we're going slowly, but we're creeping right, right along here. We're out of, the, out of those early books now. We're moving into another movement of your Bible here. Um, <clears throat> on your sheet, you'll see some of those vital statistics. We've got 31 chapters. We've got 810 verses, 25,048 words. And uh, your Bible might say this, where it says the first book of Samuel, otherwise called the first book of the kings. And this represents kind of a move in your Bible. We're moving out of that, that formation stage, and we're moving into the establishment now of the kingdom of heaven. And if you go back many months when we talked about the big picture, how God in the Old Testament is building a literal, physical kingdom on the earth, otherwise known as the kingdom of heaven, right? God's rule of heaven on the earth. Now we're moving into where God is really starting to establish that, put the kingship in place and make way for his king, David, to really take the throne. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a pivot and a development in our, in our story of the Bible. And for that reason, Jesus Christ is pictured as the son of David in this book. That's the picture because Jesus Christ is that rightful king. Amen. He is that son of David that's going to rule. And here we see David coming onto the scene in the book of 1 Samuel. The author is Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel. So he represents that transition away from the judges and into the time of the kings. And the theme, which I, like us, do not forgot to put on your sheet, the theme of the book is really the success or failure based on your obedience to God's word. 1 Samuel is really about success or failure, your success or failure, based on whether you obey or don't obey the word of God. So let's talk about how we could read this book. Let's, let's start historically, all right? Historically, all these books of the kings that we're moving into, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 King, 2 King, and in a way, Chronicles as well. But these books of the kings really start to show us the rise and the fall of the nation of Israel, right? So we're moving right along here. This is my really sophisticated graph drawn to scale, right? But we got Samuel, right? Samuel brings us into the time of the kings when the kingdom of heaven is getting established. He is our last judge. And Saul, Saul becomes our first king of Israel. He is that natural man. He pictures the natural man. He is the people's choice for king, right? God didn't pick Saul. The people picked Saul, right? So Then we move into David. David is the spiritual man. He is God's choice. And David really represents the height or really like that moving to that zenith of the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. All right, so there's there's that beginning there. Then we kind of make a turn, right? If you wanted a pivot point, 1 Kings 11 is really where you see a turn in the life of Solomon. And we start to move not, not to the establishment. Here things are going up. Then things are going down. That's the demise. With Solomon begins the demise and eventually brings us to where the kingdom of heaven is gone, goes into mystery form, and we move the nation, gets taken into captivity. Right? First, the northern tribes go into Assyrian captivity in approximately 721 B.C. You read about that in, I think, 2 Kings 17. And the south, some years later, goes into Babylonian captivity 
in 606 BC. You read about that in 2 Chronicles 36. So 2 Kings 17, northern captivity under Assyria. 2 Chronicles 36, Babylonian captivity for the south, 606. So that's like a snapshot. We're moving into the time of the kings, the rise and fall of the nation of Israel, and we leave it with the nation in captivity carried away. That's historically what we're dealing with here. Solomon, I'm sorry, Solomon, if, if Saul's the natural man and David's the spiritual man, Solomon is the carnal man, believe it or not, because he goes back and forth. There's parts of the Bible where Solomon looks like Jesus Christ himself, and there's parts of the Bible where he looks like the Antichrist himself. And Solomon is the one type in the Bible that is so close to Christ and Antichrist because there's going to be a time on the earth when there's going to be a king ruling who's going to be so close that if possible, he would deceive the very elect. It says that of the devil incarnate. So Solomon's a very interesting character. So how about doctrinally? That's a historical read. Before we dive in, how about doctrinally? Well, we could break, the, we could break it up doctrinally this way. Saul is also a type of Antichrist, right? Again, he's the people's choice, like Laodicea, the rights of the people, right? They're the ones that choose Saul, Antichrist. Then you got David is God's choice, right? He's the coming king, type of Jesus Christ. And what do you have? You have the Antichrist. Then you have the second coming of Christ. And then you have the millennium. Solomon's reign is a picture of the millennium. So even in the kings themselves, you see God telling the story of the, the premillennial order, right? Antichrist, Jesus Christ, millennial reign. So even in the order of those kings, you see a premillennial order happening, right? So that's, doc, that's doctrinal. That's some doctrinal pictures there. How about spiritually? Like, like what can we take home? Here's a big lesson we're going to take away and revisit maybe next week, God willing. Be careful what you wish for. Don't want something that God doesn't want you to have. That's a sorry tale of 1 Samuel. Think about it. God wanted to be Israel's king, but they wanted Saul. You know what the result was? Disaster. God wants to lead you. God wants to be the king of your heart. You know what? If you want to be like everybody else, you know what it's going to lead to? Disaster. So be careful what you wish for. And the breakdowns on your sheet, there's a couple of different ways to break this down. You could break it down along three people, right? You could break it down along Samuel. He's one bit, he's chapters one to seven. Saul or chapters eight to 15. And David is chapter 16 to 31. So you could organize the book that way. I have that indicated on your sheet. Or you could just see it as a transition from Judges to Kings. You could look at the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 12, is Samuel as a judge, and 13 to 31 is Saul as king, and that transition in there. So let's jump in. Now, that's like the... uh, That's like the the business of the book. Let's jump into some Bible pictures and some important truths from the book of Samuel. Let's go to chapter 1, all right? Here is the first big picture we see in Samuel. The picture, if you're taking notes at home or here or just in your mind, the picture of the barren woman. The barren woman. 
It's the account of Hannah. Hannah's a great study. She's a great lady. Let's look at verse 11. Let's look at Hannah. Number one, let's see Hannah's sorrow in verse 11. There's Hannah. She's, you know, her husband's got another wife, which just shows you that polygamy doesn't work, no matter what the Mormons tell you. Did I was supposed to say that out loud? But anyway, uh, you know, he's got this other wife who's having kids, and she's like sticking it in Hannah's face. And Hannah in verse 11 has sorrow, and it says, And she vowed a vow. And said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. She's got sorrow. You know why? Because she just wanted fruit for the Lord. It's like, Lord, I just want some fruit. And if, if you give me this child, I'm going to give him back to you. And that's a good attitude to have. It's good to be broken before God and say, Lord, I just want to be able to give you something. I just want my labor and my life to bring forth something. And that's Hannah. She's got sorrow because she wants to bring forth fruit to God. That's number one about her. Look at verse number 12. You see the second part of her then. Not only her sorrow in verse 11, but her supplication in verse 12 all the way down to verse 18. I'm not going to read all of it, but look what it says. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. You ever pray sometimes and you're just like, I mean, people do that all the time. I pastor Mike, he's all the time. You'd be sitting in a prayer circle with him. You'd think like the boogeyman was rolling up on you. And he's like, you know, they're whispering. And Eli thinks she's drunk, but she's praying. So you know what I see about this barren woman that's really instructive? She's got a prayer life. She's broken and she's sorrowing, but she's not stopping the prayers. She's misunderstood by people, but understood by God. So if you're sorrowful and you want fruit and maybe you're broken about something, Hannah's a good lesson. Don't stop praying. Don't stop seeking. You see what she says down in verse number uh, 15? She says, um, Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. That's a good place to get to. She's broken about something, but she's just laying it all out before God. Even David sometimes would pour out his complaint before God. If you read the Psalms, he would just say, Lord, what's going on here? Where are you? Why is this happening? Just don't cut the communication off. That's the worst thing to happen between you and God. That's the worst thing to happen in any... I'm looking over here like someone's over here. All right, that's the worst thing to happen in any relationship. If you just cut off communication, it all goes sour. And you can be sometimes frustrated with what God is doing. Okay, but take it up with Him. Don't close off communication, brethren. She didn't. Number three about Hannah. Look at verse 19. I want you to see her submission in verse 19. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house uh, to Ramah and Elkanah, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good, tarry until I have weaned him, only the Lord established his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. Hannah 
I want you to notice something, had no fruit until she must have surrendered some things. I don't know. She wanted that child. She wanted that fruit. But if you read her prayer from verse like 12 to 18, when she gets to verse 18, she's not sad anymore. So I don't know what she was talking about God. I don't know what she was wrestling with God, but she must have surrendered something either in her heart or in her life, and she's making good on it here, and then God is able to visit her and give her that blessing and that fruit that she's been looking for all along. So Hannah made some things right with God, seemed to have gotten some things right with God. The sadness is gone, and then right away, God's able to bless, and then she keeps her end of the bargain. She says, no, 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 I'm giving this child to the Lord, like I said. Total submitted to God. Totally submitted. I don't know. I think God purposely leaves the account of her prayer out. I don't know what she had to get right with God. I don't know what she had to lay at the altar. It was a good request to want to have fruit. But somehow, somewhere, she made something right and was able to surrender it to God and leave it at the, at the altar, so to speak. Because by the end of her prayer in verse 18, it says the last three words, she's no more sad. She kind of got something, let something go and dropped it at God's feet. And then God is able to start to bless. And I've been taught for years by my pastors, even the best intentions have to be able to be laid on the altar. It's easy to put your sins on the altar, right? Like my besetting sins, my weights. Oh, I'm an idiot. I'm proud. I got a bad habit. Oh, God, I'm going to put that on the altar. That's easy. But when it's something good like Hannah's praying for and God's not giving it to you in the time frame that you think it should happen, that's where that's where you even have to put that on the altar and say, Lord, this is yours too. And then she's blessed. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to see finally about Hannah, her song of victory. Her sorrow in verse 11, her supplication in verse 12, her submission in verse 19, and her song in chapter 2, verse 1. You know who gets the glory out of all this? God. (laughs) She doesn't gobble any of it up for herself. She says in chapter 2, 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. And if you read the next 10 verses, it's beautiful, it's full of doctrine, and this lady's song is a beautiful just uh, song of victory. And she says, God, you did this, and I want everybody to know you did this, and God the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible, so her praise was recorded. So when God gives you the victory, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Now, that's a nice like devotional to kind of like think about when it comes to Hannah, but what does Hannah show doctrinally? Hannah is one of seven barren women in the Bible. And those barren women in the Bible all represent the nation of Israel. Because you know what? The nation of Israel is barren while she has no king. She is not able to bring forth the fruit that she would like to. Now I'm just going to read these seven women out to you. Grab them if you want. Re-listen if you want. I could give you my notes if you want. First one is Sarah. She was barren for a time. Picture of Israel. Second is Rebecca. She wanted children, couldn't have them when she wanted them. She's a picture of Israel. Then you got Rachel in Genesis as well. Rachel, she wants kids. She even tells, I think, Jacob, give me children or else I die. Uh, Fourth one is Manoah's wife. That's Samson's mom in the book of Judges. Manoah's wife, you don't know her name, just that... She's the wife of Manoah. 
Fifth one is Hannah in our text right here. Sixth one is the Shunammite woman. She's got no name. The Shunammite woman. She's over there in 2 Kings 4. And the last one is in the New Testament, Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. Uh, 2 Kings 4. Yep. And if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, like Hannah, Israel is barren and waiting for a king, unable to bring forth fruit until the, rightful, until the king comes. Look at 2.4. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumble are girded with strength. This is all picture of second coming stuff. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven. See, he's picturing there, she's in her in her song, she's predicting things about the second coming of Christ, and then when that happens, the barren is going to be fruitful. I'll show you a verse that's a good cross-reference. Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 54. You got to get these pictures and these patterns. So when you're reading your Bible, you know, okay, barren woman, this might be a picture of the nation of Israel, right? So those seven are good ones. You might might see some other little ones in there too. But Isaiah 54 shows you a great fulfillment of this picture, right? Now, what's Isaiah 53 about? Suffering Suffering servant, right? It's about Jesus Christ. You know what happens after that? a barren woman starts singing. Isaiah 54. We like Isaiah 53, one of those famous chapters in the Bible. Twelve amazing verses. If I was going to memorize a chapter, that's a great chapter to memorize, but I'm not memorizing that chapter. But chapter 54 says, look at this, right after, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Please notice a couple of things. Right after the cross, a barren woman rejoices. You know what that tells me? The church is a mystery in the Old Testament. There's no 2,000-year church between 53 and 54. But you and I know because Israel rejected Jesus Christ, they've been set aside, and we bunch of goys got in, right? The Gentiles got in. That's not there because in God, in, in, as far as Israel knew, when the suffering servant came, the glory was also supposed to come. They couldn't see the church between the two. That's a good little nugget right there to see. 53 goes right into 54. But we know when, when they embrace their suffering servant, and when Israel down the road embraces her Messiah, she's going to bring forth fruit. Amen. What a day that's going to be. You think it's exciting when somebody gets saved? Now, wait till a nation gets saved, and you're going to see the whole earth bring forth fruit. It's going to be an amazing time. Go to Psalm 113. Let me show you this pattern again. Want to get the patterns? Jesus Christ comes, barren woman rejoices. Psalm 113. Watch this pattern here. Psalm 113 is a nice little cross-reference, all right? So we saw in Isaiah 54, after the cross of chapter 53, Israel, that barren woman, bears fruit like Hannah. Let's see that same pattern in Psalm 113. Let's take it in verse 4. Watch this pattern now. Got to get the patterns. As you read through your Bible and study your Bible, the more you see the patterns, the more you'll start seeing things as you read and start connecting the dots. The Lord is high above all nations 
and His glory above the heavens. So God's up there. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? Looks like God's stooping down to see what's going on down here. So God's up there in verse number 4, and then in verse 5 and 6, He's checking out what's going on down here, and look what happens in verse 7. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the needy out of the dunghill. You know what that is? That's a resurrection happening in verse number 7. So God's up there. Then he's looking what's going on down here. And then something's getting resurrected. He even talks, Hannah even talks about things getting resurrected in her song in 1 Samuel 2. So there's a connection there. She talks about raising the poor out of the dunghill just like that. She might even use the same words. i got to check. It's just occurring to me now. So there's a resurrection in verse 7. Look what happens in verse 8. That he may set him with princes even with the princes of his people. So somebody's resurrected in verse 7. Somebody's reigning in verse 8. Hello. <laughs> when God resurrects you, you're going to reign with him. And look what happens in verse 9. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. So you got yourself a resurrection in seven, somebody's reigning in verse eight, and a woman that was barren is now restored and bearing children like Hannah, like all these pictures of the nation of Israel. Praise the Lord is right. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 2. I know if that made any sense. If not, I'll explain it. If I ever don't make sense, you could always ask me because I, I know I don't make sense a lot of times. 1 Samuel chapter 2 um, Oh, yeah, just to show you the cross-reference, the Psalm 113, look at verse 8. Look what Hannah says in verse 8. Let's take it from verse 6. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. Hello, resurrection. They knew about a resurrection in the Old Testament. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory, etc., etc., etc. So, praise the Lord. There's a great connection there. The barren woman is a doctrinal picture of the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ, bearing fruit that she's been waiting for. But you say, Pat, what, did, what does that practically mean for me? You know what it means for me also? When he's not king in your heart, you won't bear any fruit for the Lord. I can learn that from Hannah. He's got to be Lord of your heart. Amen. Right? He's not sitting on a throne right now down here or like in downtown Brooklyn like our Jehovah's Witness friends like to tell us. He's got to sit on the throne of your heart and then you can be fruitful and I can be fruitful. So that means if Hannah had to get some things right, that if I want to be fruitful, and this makes my knees knock, I got to get some things right. You know, I got to pour out my heart to the Lord, pour out my soul. I got to make some things right if I want to be fruitful for Him. That's a good practical lesson. Now let's go to, excuse me. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, brother. Uh, chapter one. <laughs> Let it out, brother. Amen. Amen. Now, this one's going to be good. If you're here on a Thursday night, I think you want to serve God. Am I right? Am I right? I think, I think I'm in a crowd. And if you're watching on a Thursday night, I see you there. All right. Save me a donut. All right, but if you're watching on a Thursday night, you want to serve God. Something in you wants to do something for God. Doesn't mean you got to be in the mission field, but you want to see your family get saved. You want to see God move in your life. You want to see stuff happen. And the, the calling of Samuel, here's our second great picture. The calling of Samuel. 
in chapters 1 to 4. If you want to serve God, the calling of Samuel is a great picture of how God calls someone into service for him. Let's take it up from chapter 1. Let's take it from 24 to 28. Because in the calling of Samuel, we learn two invaluable aspects of the ministry. Ready? Let's take it from 24. Now, Hannah is bringing Samuel now, and she's devoting him to the work of the Lord. She's going to give him to Eli, commit him to the temple and the service of the temple, 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up, meaning Samuel, with her, with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. <clears throat> For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. I want you to notice two invaluable parts of the ministry. First is the family. Second is the church. Those two things got to work together. You see verses 27 to 28. Verses 27 to 28 show us the importance of family. Because you know what a church is made up of? Families. There's single guys. There's married couples. But the strength of a church is really the families of that church. That really becomes the backbone of the church. And it's really that family, right, raising those little ones for the glory of God. Those families are the ones that are going to produce the people that are going to be the ministers going forward, right? They're going to produce the people that are going to minister down the road. If the Lord tarries, guess what? I'm looking out here. You guys that are younger than I am, you're going to be the ministers if the Lord tarries and this thing has to continue. You're going to have to pick up the mantle and shine forth the word of life to a lost and dying world. You know where you came from? You didn't come from like a cabbage patch. You were, come, came from a family somewhere. And it's that family that really has to be our first ministry because Hannah wept and prayed and labored and she's the one that devotes this child to the work of the Lord. He didn't just, you know, she didn't give him to him until he was weaned. She trained him a little bit. She got him like set up a little bit and then she turns him over to somebody else to be trained for the ministry. That's a great object lesson to the moms and dads in the churches that might be raising kids or even grandkids or whoever it is. You know what? You are the, that first ministry of those people in your immediate circle. You're supposed to pour your life into them. Why? So they can be those arrows in the hand of a mighty man that God can hit the target with. That's the first ministry here is the family. Man, let's never forget. Let's never run roughshod over the families in the church. Little ones, Fam, bring your little ones. They can cry all they want, make as much noise as they want. We are family friendly. If we ever stop being family friendly, we're Pharisees, right? Kids shouldn't get on your nerves. They don't get in the way of the ministry. They are part of the ministry. They are the ministry, right? What's, I think D.L. Moody said, if I could relive my life, I'd devote my entire life to the ministry of children, 
because D.L. Moody said, if I can get you at five or six or seven, get you sold out by 10 or 11, man, you're not going to have all the junk that I had. You could do something much greater for God. You guys sitting here that got saved when you were in a Christian home, you're going to do something better than us who lived 20 or 30 or 40 years with all the garbage in our lives. I want you to be better than I am. We should want you to be better than I am. Go 10,000 feet down the road further than I could ever for Jesus Christ. That's the first part of the ministry, the family. But you see the second part? Now, I know he's not a good guy. Not our friend Eli, but the Eli in the Bible, he's not a good guy. But he pictures something. He pictures the second tier. He pictures the importance of the church. He pictures like the church because he's an elder that's being committed. Samuel's being committed to him to be trained, to be brought up, to be taught how to serve God in the temple. So we got these two things. We got the family that produces the men, and then we've got the importance of church that prepares the ministers. I mean, if anybody in this congregation has a heart to minister... This place, not the house or the building, but the fellowship and the ministry, this is where you exercise those gifts. You don't run off to Bible college somewhere. And I'm not saying those are all bad, but the local church is the place that God has ordained to really be the pillar and the ground of the truth. This is where the truth is supposed to work itself out so that you can go out there and go do something for God, whether it's just at your workplace or a mission field or another church somewhere that you end up leading down the road. This is the, this is the greenhouse. Right? The older guys was to take the younger guys, the older ladies take the younger ladies, and we take people under our wing, and that's how this thing is fruitful and multiplies and replenishes the earth. That's how we accomplish the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not supposed to be executed by organizations and these corporate models out there. The work of the ministry and the perfecting of the saints is supposed to happen with this book, the fellowship of the brethren, and the Holy Spirit of God just working through this thing called church. You see why church is important? I don't mean just showing up. I mean being a part of the family of God and ministering and learning and iron sharpening like the guys on the men's text just sharing verses and praying for each other and the ladies do their thing and people do their thing and that's the work of the ministry, man. That's, what, that's how this thing lives and breathes and grows into a holy temple. You could tell I'm a little bit into the. I, I just get the corporate model out of your life. Yeah. Listen, there's a church not far from here. And I'll be honest with you. When they were looking for a pastor, I wanted their building. So I say, you know, let me feel them out. You know, what do they want? You know, you know what they wanted. Where were you trained? Where's your school? Like, what letters do you have after your name? The only letters I got after my name are M-U-D. I don't have any, like, I don't have any letters after my name that anybody would be impressed with, you know? But you know what? Where'd, I, where'd you, where'd you train? I know. I just spent 20 years in a local church being trained by some of the best Christians I knew who knew the book better than any of you guys from your schools. So I figured I'd just sit there and learn that way. That's how Pastor Mel started it, and that's, what, that's, the, that's the mantle that he passed down. And the world may look at that like, you don't have the credentials. I'll sit down. You want to show me where the second advent happens? If you could trace it in Scripture, I'd be impressed with you if you even know Jesus Christ is coming again. Somewhere, somehow, the local church 
sold out for the corporate model and the big Bible college, and that's not how this thing is supposed to work. It's supposed to be families together, the family of God together, and older men and older ladies getting people ready for what they want to do for God. We see both of those things right there. I didn't know that was not in the notes to go on that much of a kick. Uh, Chapter 3, chapter 3. Now, what Samuel is going through is a lot of what we go through. Want to see chapter 3, verse 1? And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Man, if that is not a description of today. When there is no king in Israel, and when you're doing what's right in your own eyes, there is no open vision. Not, not anybody's really seeing God work, God move, and understanding what God's all about. So Samuel is there with all this potential, right? Hannah gives him to the work of God. And in verse number 7, Eli, a picture of the church, the elders, Eli has to help Samuel understand what God is saying to him. That's the picture. See 7? Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. You see that? Little Samuel, he didn't know what God was trying to say to him until the older Eli explained to him what was happening. And that's a picture of God giving the church some older guys in the Lord and older ladies in the Lord who can guide the younger ladies and the younger men to understand, hey, what is God trying to say to you? What are you supposed to do? How do you respond? I hope you see that picture. If you've been saved any length of time, you're supposed to be looking out for who can you take under your wing and try to guide them in the Word of God so they know what God is trying to say to them and what they're supposed to do. And please notice, please, in verse number 10, if you like to study fours in the Bible, which is how God establishes something, it's the fourth time God calls Samuel that he responds. He responds on the fourth time, and God is establishing a truth that if Samuel did not have some man to guide him, he would have kept hanging up on God and not knowing what was going on. That's what God's trying to point out right there, that that older person, a picture of somebody older in the Lord, is giving him some truth to help him get established. Look at verse 7 again. I call verse 7 the Samuel moment. Have you had a Samuel moment? The Samuel moment is when you start taking the Word of God personally. When you start realize that God is talking to you God wants you to do something. God wants you to put tracks in your pocket. God wants you to pray. God wants you to look people around you that are lost. You're the one that's supposed to witness to them. God is talking to you. It's like that old like war poster, right? God's going, I want you to join my army. And that's when you have that moment, you can't serve God without having that moment. You can't really be effective until you realize that when the Holy Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word of God and your reading of the Word of God and your fellowship with the Word of God, until you realize that the Holy Spirit is going, I want you, and He's talking to you and aiming at you, until you have that moment, you're really not going to be much of a servant. But when you read that Bible and start to realize, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. 
and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. You start realize that God's talking to you, and I'm here to tell you, like Eli, God is talking to you. When you start realizing God's talking to you, then you start becoming a minister and not just an occupier of a seat somewhere. You become a servant. All right, let's go to chapter 4. Here's another great picture in chapter 4. I guess it's picture number 3. Don't go to war with an empty box. The Philistines are their great enemies, right? And I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. The Philistines are coming to battle against Israel. It says, And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. They go to war trusting in a box and not the God of the box. And they get whipped. The lesson is, it's not the ark of God that was going to save them. It's the God of the ark that was going to save them. And listen, listen, I'm preaching at you here. Reading the Bible is good. I just said, going to church is necessity. Uh, Praying to God is important. But those things by themselves don't give you victory. You can read the Bible all you want like it's an academic book. You're not going to get any victory. You can recite some prayers. It's not going to give you victory. You can, you know, walk in church with your heart 10,000 miles from the fellowship, and it's not going to give you victory. We've got to be very careful that we don't get hung up with the objects of ministry, but the subject of the ministry. Your Bible reading is you supposed to be finding Jesus Christ wherever you're reading. Your prayers are an opportunity to commune with God, whatever you're praying for. Your going to church is to fellowship with the saints so He dwells in the midst. Your even service of handing out tracts or whatever it is is so that you can learn God's ways and know God's mind. The subject of all we do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. But these people got so into the machinery of it. Read a Bible, pray every day, read a Bible. They just got into the, and they said, we just fetch the ark. And you see they're calling for an it and not a him, not a he, not a you, but an it. Listen, I believe the King James Bible is the word of God from cover to cover, including the cover, as they like to say, right? It's the pure preserved word of God, 66 books, right? Gun barrel straight, as Dave Spurgeon says, I'll fire it when I need to fire it. But I'm no fool. I can memorize the whole Bible if my heart's not right and I'm not seeking him. Hey, Muslims memorize the Quran. That's just like a devotional religious exercise. But you got to seek him. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. Let me show you chapter 4, verse 21. And, and we know what happens. The Philistines come in and rock them. Uh, Hafti and Phineas, Eli's kids, die. They get killed. Eli hears the news. He falls backwards and breaks his neck. And um, uh, it says she, this is uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, and she, she has that child, right? The grief makes her go into labor. And uh, it says in 21, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel. What I'm saying is if you're fetching an it instead of finding him, you could write Ichabod on your life. There's going to be no glory there. There's going to be no glory. The glory is in seeking him. Amen? So good success only comes when you seek 
the God of the Bible, the God of your prayers, the God of the church. We got to find him. Amen. Let's go next picture. Chapter five to seven. Chapter five to seven, and I'm hurrying along here. I'll be done soon. Chapter five to seven is Samuel standing for God when no one wants to hear it. Oh boy. I am preaching to the choir now. Standing for God when nobody wants to hear it. Because if you're going to minister for the Lord, that's what you've got to be prepared to do. See chapter 5, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went to, oh, I'm sorry, in the wrong chapter, 5. Uh, and the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer um, unto Ashdod. Number one, the ark's been captured. You know what the enemy is going to do? He wants to steal your relationship. He wants to steal the people of God's connection to God. That ark was where God's presence abode in the tabernacle. They've taken that. The enemy wants to steal your connection and your access to the presence of God. That's number. I'm just trying to paint the world that we're in right now. We're in a world where the connection to God has been stolen by the enemy and the relationship of the people with God is in the pits. Right? Chapter 6, verse 7 to 9. So the Philistines are going to bring the, bring the ark back. You know they want to bring it back? Verse 7. They want to bring it back on a cart. Now God said carry it on staves with certain families of the Levites. He says put the, the Levites put it on, an, on a cart. You know what that shows me? Not only was the ark captured, but the ark's been compromised. Bad ideas from the enemy get into our relationship with God. You know, David picked up on that idea. Remember when David tried to bring the ark back in Jerusalem? It was on a cart. Where do you think David got that idea from? He got that idea from the Philistines. They saw the Philistines bringing in on a cart. He says, oh, that's a good idea. That's pragmatic. I'll put on a cart too. And Uzzah sees it steady and he just flippantly puts his hand on that ark and God kills him. Because God says, no, you're not supposed to steady the ark on a cart. You're supposed to carry it on staves and bear the burden of the ministry. No shortcuts. You see how the enemy works? What he wants to do first, he wants to steal the ark. He wants to get your connection out of there. But if he can't do that, he'll just corrupt it with compromise. He'll just try to work in all these other shortcuts and worldly ideas from the enemy so you're not really doing it the way God said to do it. Let me tell you something. If God, ta- if God, ca- if the devil, I'm getting excited. If the devil can't get you out of a, a Bible-believing church or a Christian church, you know what he'll have you do? He'll have you sit there with the devil's Bible. That's how he works, man. He may not get you all back to Mother Church like he'd like to, but you could sit there in an evangelical, gospel-preaching church, reading things that call devil and Jesus the same thing, reading things that attack the deity of Christ, reading things that compromise the blood, reading things that just obscure all the doctrines, and he's content to let you sit there in the right church with the wrong Bible. Because if he can't cut off the connection outright, he'll corrupt it with compromise. That's the world of Samuel. That's where he is. And then in chapter 7, you see where we're at now. Here's where we're at. Verse 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, 
Then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. Oh my goodness, not only was the ark captured and compromised, man, all the things of God have been cast aside. These people didn't just lose their stuff, they lost their heart for God. Samuel steps up and says, you guys are serving Balaam and Ashtaroth, you're serving idols, come back to God. It's a sad state Samuel's in when the enemy seduces God's people. And you see verse 5? Look what Samuel does. Now Samuel looks like the only guy in town who has any heart for God. Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children were gathered together, children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. In that whole nation, they could only turn to one guy. In that whole nation, only Samuel looks like he's trying to apply God's word in an age that seems to have no heart for it. You're in, that's the world we live in, guys. Even among professing Christians. They're, they're, they don't know anything. They don't care. Church, Bible, God, prayer, sacrifice, devotion. It's like you're talking another language. I just go to the coffee house and we share a little bit and then I go home and I do whatever I want to do. We start preaching things about sacrifice, consecration, devotion, selling out for God. We try to preach the Bible here among all our people as hot and as true to the word of God as we can. You know what the word, the, the Christian world looks at you like, you guys are crazy. You're nuts, right? That's Samuel. Samuel's standing up. He seems like the only guy who has a heart for God in a world of people that are supposed to be God's people that don't even seem like they know anything about God. You say, what's the lesson, Pat? Don't gripe about it. Embrace it. Be that one that stands up. Because if you're going to serve the Lord, you've got to be prepared to stand, even if you stand alone. That's where it's got to be. When you stand for God, be prepared to stand alone. If you do that, you'll never be disappointed. It's like that great prophet Micaiah. You ever read like 1 Kings? Micaiah is an awesome prophet. I want to meet this guy in heaven. He looks like a rough rider. He looks like he was no joke. They got him in the prison. Ahab brings him out. He says, this guy, I hate this guy. He never prophesies good. There's all these false prophets. And they're all like, go up and prosper. God's going to help you. And this guy's the one shooting the straight stuff. And man, you know what his name means? His name means who is like God. That's what Micaiah means. Who is like God. And if you're going to be like God, you got to stand for truth even when you're standing alone. Amen. John Knox was a great preacher in Scotland in the 16th century, I believe. And he said, a man with God is always in the majority. So even if you think you're standing alone, and though no one joined me, still I will follow, guess who's right with you? Jesus Christ is with you. You're going to get to the place, if it's just you and Jesus in the dungeon, then I'm in, I'm in the majority still. Samuel was getting to that place as part of his development as a minister that he was standing for God even when he was standing alone. If you're going to serve God, be prepared to stand for God when your family forsakes you, when your friends think you're nuts, and even some of the brethren at church that aren't living lives of consecration and devotion look at you like, oh, who do you think you are? All sold out like that. Be prepared for even the brethren to look at you funny 
Because I know everybody on a Sunday morning isn't sold out for God. I know that. But you know what? You've got to be willing to sold out for God and give Him everything you've got in your heart, and you'll be like Samuel. Chapter 8, and then we'll, we'll hurry through here. We're almost done. What are we going to do for that? Chapter 8 is our next picture. God's people want a king. Be careful what you want and wish for. That's the lesson. Because in chapter 8, let's take from verse 1. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways. That's pretty sad, but we won't go there right now. But turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. God's people wanted to be led just like the world. We want to be like everybody else, preacher. We want to be like everybody else, preacher. And look what happens in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel, and it is disheartening. I won't lie. It's disappointing. I won't lie. How sad it is to see God's people with God's word want the world. I'm not talking about each of us that makes a mistake. I'm talking about some people that just throw the whole thing overboard and walk on down the road and say, I want nothing to do with that stuff because I just want to be like everybody else. I'm not going to lie. It's disheartening to see somebody just walk out of church, walk away from fellowship, throw all the investment overboard. Hey, I'm a glass house. It's discouraged. Samuel was displeased. But you know what? How sad to see God's people like that. And Samuel does the one thing a preacher can do. He issues a warning. Verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that will reign over you. And you should underline the next three words, put a box around them. He will take. He says, you put the wrong king over you, the king that you want, not the king that God wants, and he's going to be a taker. Praise God, Jesus Christ wants to be your king. He's a giver, amen? He's a giver, a giver, a giver. But the wrong king, the devil's king, he's a taker. And Samuel just lays out the warning. I'm not going to read all the verses, but in verse 11 and 13, he says he will take your posterity. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your family if you put the wrong king over you. That's the first thing he'll take. He'll take your posterity, your future, your legacy, your heritage. Number two in verses 14 to 17, I'm not going to read them all. He will take your prosperity. He'll take your posterity and he'll take your prosperity. He says, you're going to take your fields. He's going to take your tithes. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take all the stuff that God has blessed you with down here. He's going to take it. Now, I do want you to read the end of verse 17 because this is the third and the final one. He says, at the end of 17, He will take the tent of your sheep, and ye shall be His servants. You know who He's going to take next? He's going to take you. (laughs) He'll take your kids. He'll take your stuff. And when He's done taking everything else, He's going to take you personally. You're going to end up serving Him when you thought 
he was going to be such a blessing to you. And look, you, get, you issue that warning, but here's the hardest part of the story to me. Man, this is tough. I mean, you get up there, I mean, Samuel probably was like preaching his guts out, got a message right from God. He's sweating and spitting, probably waving his hands like a crazy Italian, and he's trying to get this across to people. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And you know what they say in verse 19? Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, nah, nay, but we'll have a king over us. Then we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Woo! That is a tough response to the invitation. He just laid out a three points, right? He's going to take your family. He's going to take your stuff. He's going to take you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. They're like, eh. Eh, we want one. <laughs> we just want one. And it's sad, man. The people of God, here's what, here's what happened. They just didn't care. They just wanted the world. They didn't care. They didn't care what God had to say, what the preacher had to say. They didn't care. They just said, no, no. They go right back to jump. No, we want a king like all the nations. Thanks, 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 Sam. That was a good message. I'll, I'll listen to it again. But I still want it. And sometimes it's sad to plead with people, pray with people, lay out the verses of people, and they're just like, eh, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's, that's the people of God today, folks. I'm not hating. I'm just stating an observational, empirical fact. Just, most people just, welcome to Laodicea. <laughs> Laodicea means justice of the people, rights of the people. Welcome to the age of caring about what the people want, not what God wants. Hey, sister. Hey, brother. Bible says this. I don't care. And I don't care so much, I'm going to make you the villain, I'm going to go off and do what I want to do anyway, so I can have my nose clean when I look at myself in the mirror. Welcome to Laodicea, hopefully you don't have to stay too long, right? Uh, so many of God's people today don't care what God wants, they just care what they want. What I want, I don't care who I got to do, I don't care what I got to do to get it, I want what I want. I want to be like the world, I want the things the world promises, that's it. That's where we are, without natural affection. Hey, but you know what? The darker it gets, the easier it is for you to shine. Amen. That's a blessing. Hey, let it be dark. Hey, we could shine even brighter. Chapter, and here's what you learn in chapters 9 to 12, that the people's choice, that was Saul, will never be the best choice, will never be the right choice. I'll show you some things about Saul. Saul's the king they got. Saul's the king they wanted. See chapter 9, verse 5? Saul's looking for some asses. Asses are a picture of the lost man. And Saul, in verse 5, says, And when they were come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. You know what? Saul didn't even care about finding those asses because the flesh doesn't care about the lost. That's Saul. That's the king you want. The one that doesn't really care about people. The one that doesn't care to seek and to save that which is lost. That's who they wanted over them. That's the first thing you see about him. He didn't care about those lost, those lost animals. He said, oh, I don't want to get in trouble with my dad. What will the people think of me? I can't go stand on that street corner. I can't hand out tracts. They'll think I'm a nut. Number two about Saul. Look at verse, chapter 10, uh, verse 15. So Saul has this encounter with Samuel. Samuel tells him all this stuff. Samuel tells him where the asses are. He tells him you're going to be the king. 
And in verse 15, Saul comes home, speaks to his family, and Saul's uncle said, tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. You know what this is? This is This is God opening up the bay doors, backing up the truck, and giving Samuel a chance to testify about what God had said to him through the prophet Samuel. And look what it says in verse 16. And Saul said unto his uncle, Oh, he told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the matter of the kingdom, whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. Saul doesn't talk about the kingdom. You know why? Because the flesh doesn't care about God. The flesh doesn't care about the things of God. This is who they wanted reigning over them. Someone that doesn't care about souls. Someone that doesn't care about the things of God. That's who they embraced as their choice. And then you go to chapter 11, verse 6. Now, in verse 6, Saul looks pretty good. Saul steps in for the people. They're threatened, and it says, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled, and he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. You know what that shows me? Hey, the flesh can make a fair show sometimes. Sometimes the flesh can do some things that look pretty good and might make you think that it's not that bad, but don't be deceived. The flesh doesn't care about your soul and the flesh doesn't care about the things of God and that's not who's supposed to be ruling over you. And Samuel tried to warn him. And the next few chapters, you see what kind of king this really is. Let's finish in chapter 12 for tonight. Just going to read you a few verses in chapter 12, and we'll be done right here. This is Samuel's warning to the nation of Israel. He's about to, you know, he's getting ready, he's getting old up in years, and he issues this warning. This becomes like that break in the book. 1 to 12 is Samuel as judge. 13 to 31 is Saul as king. And at the end of this section on Samuel, he issues this dire warning in verse 20. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not. You have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. After wanting a worldly king, after wanting to be just like the world, Samuel issues this warning to the nation of Israel. Please notice the warning has two parts. It's got positive and it's got negative. See verse 22? He says, hey, God is so good, He won't forsake you entirely. God is so good, He he chose you as His people, He wants to help you, He wants to bless you, all you got to do is repent. That's that's the positive side. That's the carrot, right? That's the good stuff. And, and, And preaching has to have that, right? There's hope, there's a way to get back to God, there's always something you can do. If you're sitting here tonight, or sitting here at home, you might feel a thousand miles from God, or right next to Him. I don't know everybody's situation. There, nobody is lost if they're still breathing. There is hope if you're under the sound of the Bible. There is something you can do right now to make a move closer in God's direction and employ something of God's principles to change your life. There is always something you can do. If you don't believe that, the devil's stolen your hope. There is hope. 
always hope. If you're alive and God's given you another day, there's hope to do something that God wants you to do to make a step back. It might be a thousand steps and a thousand miles, but you could take that step. What's right in front of you? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The lamp doesn't show you five years down the road. The lamp shows you five feet down the road. As that lamp is showing you five feet down the road, what is the light God has given you right now with this little bit you got? Amen. And just follow that light. And then you get more light. You keep, and the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The preacher's got to give you that. Don't just shear the sheep and leave them bleeding. Give them something they can do. But there's also a little bit of vinegar in there in verse 25. He says, but if you forsake the Lord, <clears throat> you're going to pay the price. And you're going to be an honest man with the word of God. You can't leave that out. God wants to give you heaven but you will go to hell. God wants to bless you, but you can lose all your rewards. <laughs> I mean, they're both there. That's the theme of the book. I said it a little while ago. Your success or your failure is based on your obedience to what God says. Do it and be blessed. Break it and be judged. So let me finish with this question. How do you minister like Samuel among people who don't want God. That's Samuel's position. Two quick takeaways right there. Verse 20. See the beginning of 20? And Samuel said unto the people. Here's the first thing you got to do. If you're going to be a minister, and people are going to disappoint you, fail on you, whatever, here's what you got to do. Number one, you got to keep preaching. Keep preaching. Keep telling people the truth. There's going to be judgment and hope mixed into your message, but you've got to keep putting it out there at the family dinner table, at the street corner, at the workplace, wherever you are that God is letting you be a minister and be a witness or a servant. Don't care who's disappointed you. Don't care how many times they laughed in your face. You keep preaching. Samuel looked at the disaster that was becoming his nation, and he opened up his mouth and gave them a message to give them judgment and hope. That's number one. And number two is verse 23. Keep praying. He says, I'm not going to stop praying. It would be a sin for me to cease praying. So if I'm going to serve God in a world that looks pretty messed up, among even God's people that might be messed up, I've got to keep preaching the truth, and I've got to keep praying that truth into people's hearts. Because even when I can't go to men on behalf of God, I can go to God on behalf of men. So keep interceding, even for the wayward, and don't give up. Because you know what Samuel tells us, we'll talk about next week, David is coming. David is coming. So you're serving God in a world that doesn't seem to embrace or care for the truth. You keep preaching. You keep praying. Because guess what? David is right around the corner. And when he comes, he'll settle the score. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We thank you tonight. Lord, we praise you tonight.